Hi, and welcome to Tech Empire, a new podcast dedicated to challenges posed by a technology-driven society. I'm your host, Michael Quet, a visiting fellow of the Information Society Project at Yale Law School. With each day that goes by, technology seeps deeper into the fabric of society. Artificial intelligence helps filter our job applications or assigns us criminal risk scores. Surveillance cameras are covering the streets and have data analytics built in. Big technology companies are looking less like cool brands and more like Big Pharma or Wall Street. This show will challenge the status quo of the digital society and explore how we can create a world where technology makes life better for everyone. We will speak with some of the most distinguished voices in the world, as well as those who are doing interesting work, but on a smaller stage. From big data to information equality, from Black Lives Matter in the US to fees must fall in South Africa, we will strike at the heart of power in the digital age. Welcome to Tech Empire. Today we're going to talk about Facebook, Cambridge Analytica, the power of big social media platforms, and what to do about regulating them. Before we discuss these topics, let me introduce today's guest, Jack Balkin. Jack is Knight Professor of Constitutional Law and the First Amendment at Yale Law School. He is the founder and director of Yale's Information Society Project, an interdisciplinary center that studies law and new information technologies. He also directs the Abrams Institute for Freedom of Expression in the Knight Law and Media Program at Yale. Jack, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Also joining us today is Kamel Aji, a resident fellow at the Information Society Project at Yale Law School and a doctoral candidate in constitutional law at Paris II University. He is also founder of 21 Mirrors, a nonprofit ratings agency for online social media that focuses on their behavior with respect to privacy and civil liberties. Thanks for joining us, Kamel. Thank you for having me. All right, so to start off, uh, Jack has a famous theory of information fiduciaries, which we will explain in a moment. But before we get to that, uh, Jack, you created the Information Society Project here at Yale. Tell us more about what it is uh, and why you created it in the first place. So I started it in 1997, uh, before there was Google, before there was Facebook, um, before there were a lot of things. And the idea was, it was quite clear that, uh, that the internet was going to transform society. It was going to change people's lives. It was going to change politics. It was going to change the economy, everything. And so I thought it was very important that uh, we have a center that was devoted to studying the information, then the information society and what was going to happen. I didn't call it a center on the internet because it wasn't clear to me that it was going to be primarily only about the internet. It was going to be about all these things happening. And it turns out now we study social media and we study algorithms and we study robotics uh, and we study a whole range of different issues that arise from technological change and how it's affecting our lives. How did you decide to get involved in that in particular? Were you using computers a lot and were like, hey, this stuff is going to be a big deal? Or 
What was it that drove you in, in the context of your life towards this kind of project? Well, often, as you know, when you tell, we answer these questions, it's overdetermined. When I was a kid, I was a big science fiction fan. I read all the great science fiction works. When I, and I uh, was involved in programming computers as a teenager, of those days we used punch cards. Uh, and uh, then when I started teaching uh, law, uh, back in uh, the mid-'80s, I was an early adopter of the of personal computers, uh, and I was the, you know, Mr. Fix-It around the law school, uh, fixing other people's computer problems. And I got interested in that. It's also the case that I'm a First Amendment scholar, and I got very interested in the processes of communication that were changing all around me. So it was pretty inevitable that by the time we got to the mid-1990s, when the internet becomes commercialized and really starts getting developed, that this would be an area I would get into. Okay. Um, so uh, let's segue then to uh, some of our topic of discussion today, uh, Cambridge Analytica and Facebook. Um, so between 2010 and 2015, Facebook offered app publishers a feature called the Graph API, which allowed them to collect Facebook profile information about their users, including the data from Facebook friends um, of their users. So in other words, if you're using this app and the app is allowed to collect data about you, but it's also allowed to collect data about your friends. Um, this permissi permissive data collection system allowed Facebook apps to collect data from millions of people who didn't actually use the app. Uh, Facebook completely ended this feature in 2015. However, during that time, a university researcher, Alexander Kogan, designed a personality quiz app called This Is Your Digital Life for Facebook that surveyed 270,000 Facebook users. Because Kogan could also collect data from Facebook friends, he was able to obtain data from at least 87 million people. He then sold the data to a private consultancy firm, Cambridge Analytica, which created profiles about individuals based on psychographic profiling for the purpose of political adver advertising. This allowed them to target individuals based on psychological traits, such as agreeableness and, or openness to new experiences. They conducted targeted advertising for the 2016 Trump campaign and for other elections in countries like Nigeria and Kenya. Uh, during Mark Zuckerberg's testimony in Congress, Jack's theory was mentioned by Senator Brian Schatz. Uh, here's what he said. In the time I have left, I want to I want to propose something to you and take it for the record. Uh, I read an interesting article this week by Professor Jack Balkin at Yale uh, that proposes a concept of an information fiduciary. People think of fiduciaries as responsible primarily in the uh, economic sense, but this is really about a trust relationship like doctors and lawyers, tech companies uh, should hold in trust our personal data. Are you open to the idea of a information fiduciary enshrined in statute? Senator, I think it's certainly an interesting idea and Jack is very thoughtful in this space, so I, I do think it deserves consideration. Thank you. Uh, Jack, what's your what's your reaction to this? Uh, well, uh, Mark Zuckerberg has for some time uh, been saying things along the lines of, uh, we have a relationship of trust to our users. Uh, we're here to create a community, a safe community for our users. Um, if we don't act in a trustworthy way, we don't deserve your data. So he said that on any number of occasions, and he actually said things very like much like that after the scandal broke, and he wrote a, a series of posts on 
uh, on Facebook that said that. So it's not surprising uh, in some sense that, you know, he's open to discussing it. Now, of course, once his lawyers talk to him about it, uh, <laughs> uh, we don't know exactly what Facebook will be willing to com commit to. But it's what's useful in thinking about it, in, in thinking about the general problem, is to start with a single word, and that word is trust. And trust is probably the most important concept in understanding how to regulate social media today. So then the notion of trust for you is coming out of this fiduciary, um, the tradition of fiduciary law, right? Right. So the idea is real simple. Uh, in English common law, uh, and ported over to the United States uh, after the founding, there was this very basic idea. There were a group of folks that delivered certain kinds of services. Um, in modern terms, the most familiar are doctors, lawyers, uh, estate managers, people who take care of your money. And these people, because of their superior expertise and superior knowledge, you had to trust them. You had to rely on them. And in the course of providing services, you need it legal services, medical services, money management services, you had to reveal an enormous amount about yourself to them. Their job depended on getting a lot of information about you and using it to provide services to you. But that put you in a really difficult situation. It made you vulnerable. It made you vulnerable because they knew a lot of things about you that could be embarrassing or that could be used to your disadvantage. And if they were unscrupulous and were untrustworthy, they could betray you. They could take all the stuff you had given them and they could turn it against you. And because of this, the English common law creates the idea of a fiduciary. A fiduciary relationship is one that is this form right, in which somebody, you're vulnerable to somebody, you provide an enormous amount of information, they can screw you uh, if they're unscrupulous. And so it creates a special duty, fiduciary duties. And these are duties of trustworthiness, there are duties of care, you have to take care of the, your client or beneficiary, and duties of loyalty. That is, you have to take the client's or beneficiary's interests as your own interests. You can't engage, deliberately engage in a conflict of interest. You have to engage in both care and loyalty. And the central idea of the fiduciary is the idea that you have to act in a trustworthy manner so that people can trust you. And if you betray your duty, you're acting in a non-trustworthy fashion and you're betraying their trust. That's at the center of this whole Facebook Cambridge Analytica scandal. Yeah. So uh, can you please tell us who um, – so, so what constitutes uh, duties of, of good faith and non-manipulation online? Uh, because you, you transposed uh, duties of care and loyalty in your paper into duty of uh, – of good faith and non-manipulation. So how right. can we apply these to uh, information technology? So there are a couple of very simple ones, and then there are some that get more complicated. Let's give you the simplest one. The simplest one is simply a duty to take care of the personal data that you collect from the end user. So if you are careless, you will uh, basically allow the data to leak out to perfect strangers who have no duties uh, of care or loyalty and therefore can use the data in, in ways that uh, could harm the end user. You have to produce information security policies. You have to take care that anybody that you give the data to will treat it securely and also will keep it confidential in exactly the same way that you have to keep it confidential. So let's take 
this example. What did Facebook do? Facebook created a policy, an API, right? Is, is the policy in, effectively in code that says that if you have access to the API, in effect, you have access not only to the end user, but to all the end user's friends. This is not a secure policy. This is not a policy that's taking care to protect the confidentiality of the data. In fact, it's a really foolish policy, and Facebook adopted it uh, because they thought it was a good money-making policy. They also had an interest in ingratiating themselves with data scientists. So there were two groups of people that basically could use the API. There were uh, business partners and Facebook would take a cut of the proceeds. And then there were data scientists like Kogan. And the purpose for that was that they could perform, they could gather data for social science research and perform experiments. Facebook's interest here was twofold. First of all, it wanted to ingratiate itself with data scientists because it relies on them. And it wants data science to be on its side. And that's still the case today. And second of all, the data scientists might perform interesting experiments on end users. Facebook might find that information, the results of those experiments useful. So if we think about that now from the standpoint of trustworthiness and trust, we not only have a problem with the duty of care, we have a problem with duty of loyalty. Um, Kogan was basically going to perform social science experiments on Facebook's end users without them knowing it. If you were in a university setting like Yale, you would have to present your proposed research in front of a review board that would ask ethical questions, like, is this an ethical thing to do to people? But Facebook, of course, is not a university. And indeed, what it's doing is it's doing an end run around the kind of review boards that universities have to allow social scientists to perform the kind of experiments that may or may not be the kinds that would be treated as ethical, considered as ethical. That's the first problem. The second problem was that what Facebook did was it didn't very much pay attention to what Kogan was doing. Kogan turns around. He's not. He's maybe a data scientist, but he's also a guy who really wants to make money. So he's in cahoots with Cambridge Analytica. And Cambridge Analytica, in fact, is not interested really in promoting social science research for its own sake. They want to make money. They want to make money by basically partnering with various politicians. And so their purpose, their whole point in being is to manipulate people. So what we have is we have a breach of trust in terms of the development of the API. We have a breach of trust in not taking care of who we uh, gave the API to. We have a breach of trust in terms of the uses of the, uh, of the data for social science experiments with no ethical boundaries. And we have a further breach of trust in the idea of turning the data to be used for a completely unexpected and unanticipated purpose. That is the creation of psychographic profiles for the purpose of sending out uh, what is essentially propaganda uh, to uh, end users for politics. It's one thing to think, well, Facebook will take my data and I'll get a, a bunch of extra shampoo ads. It's another thing uh, to basically learn that uh, Cambridge Analytica is basically tailoring messages to manipulate me in politics. So let me ask you, uh, who are the precise beneficiaries of, uh, the, infer of the, the, the fiduciary relationship uh, applied, as, as applied online? Is it individual users? groups, uh, the entire community of users? Uh, what about anonymized users and non-users? All right. So this is a very important question. I think that the limits of the fiduciary principle are, at least traditionally, that the fiduciary duty was owned to those who were your clients or beneficiaries. So that would be the uh, Facebook end users. But we can think about that duty in two ways. We can think about a duty to each individual end user not to manipulate them. 
not to use their data in unexpected and highly offensive ways, uh, to keep their data secure and confidential. And we can also think about the entire community of users, which could have interests that are not reducible to the individual interests of any individual user. So when we think about the fiduciary user, we can think about duties to individuals and to groups and to Facebook community as a whole. A dicier question, a more difficult question is this. Suppose Facebook, as my friend Jonathan Zittrain at Harvard uh, once suggested in 2014, uses its powers to uh, selectively send out messages to suppress the vote of political opponents and uh, increase the turnout of political supporters. In this way, as Zittrain points out, Facebook could swing an election. In fact, he didn't know it at the time, but at the very moment he was saying this, there was this thing going on that was going to lead to the Cambridge Analytica scandal. Is Facebook's duty purely to its end users, or would Facebook's duty then apply to everyone in the United States, or in any country where, in fact, Facebook was manipulating politics? And this is a dicier question, because the traditional conception of the fiduciary had to do with the client. But it's also true in law that doctors are thought to have duties to the public generally. For example, in cases of public health, when there are communicable diseases. Uh, psychiatrists have duties to the public uh, as well. So it's possible that the idea could be extended generally to the public. In, in, what's interesting, of course, is that in the case of Facebook, such a huge percentage of the voting public, or indeed of the public generally, is a member of Facebook that the relationship between Facebook's clientele and the American public is almost, you know, they almost overlap completely. And, and that... Um that's interesting. Zitrain's example is interesting because if there is manipulation, um, commonly people say, well, if it, I'm not worried about this affecting me. But like he says, if it changes the uh, outcome of an election, then you are affected by it, right? And there's, there's many other case examples we can come up, up with. One of the um, um, questions that will arise with the information fiduciary's proposal is what constitutes an advantage and a disadvantage. You write in one of your articles, um, you cannot use sensitive information to your advantage and to the disadvantage of your patients, right? Um, how, what constitutes that? Because um, a lot of what is data is used for, one could argue, is manipulation. So let's take an example here. If you're looking at targeted advertising, you have A slash B testing. Now, in the advertising industry, there's always been, I'm sure, um, you know, testing to see which advertisements work and, and, and so on. But we now have a situation where um, they're giving advertisements to one group of individuals. See, they're able to watch and see what they click on. Then once they, what they click on, what they wind up eventually purchasing. Mm -hmm. And they're, they're following you all the way down a mar what they call a marketing funnel. And then on group B, they give you a different advertisement. And you have blue in one sense, pink in the other. Right. Um, and which do you like better? Which do you like better? I mean, to me, that is, is um, uh, some of the marketing literature I've come, come across, they're using location-based tracking to get people to um, conduct what they call impulsive purchases. Right? So is, what, where is the limit in terms of what is um, to an advantage and disadvantage? Where, how do you define what manipulation is. Right. So there are two issues raised by your question. The first issue is what's the baseline? Uh, 
of permissible ways of making money. And the second question, which is related, is and what, how do we define the idea of manipulation given the baseline? So I, I should point out, in traditional fiduciary relationships, the fiduciary often makes money off of the client. Lawyers charge fees, doctors charge fees, uh, uh, money managers charge fees, and so forth. Um, so it can't be that to be a fiduciary means that you're non-for-profit. You have to be able to make money. But the ways in which you make money should be so structured that they don't create an incentive for you to screw over the client, to har actively harm the client, right? Um, to, and also to harm the client to your advantage. So that's why, in fact, in legal ethics, there are all these rules about the kinds of fees lawyers can charge and the conditions under which they can charge them. And there are, uh, there are restrictions on the ways that lawyers can enter into business relationships with their clients and so forth. Similarly, with doctors, there are re restrictions from the standpoint of medical ethics and the kinds of experimentation that uh, doctors can uh, perform on their patients, which would presumably advance the doctor or the researcher's career. Um, in other words, this problem happens all the time in the context of these other fiduciaries. So what you need to do, and realistically, is to set a baseline of expectations, a baseline of expectations about what is the normal practice of the provision of this service. Now, I would tend to be relatively conservative about this. In other words, I wouldn't take the position that some people have taken, although I understand their argument, that all targeted advertising should be declared manipulative and therefore you can't make money off of it. I wouldn't take that position. My position is that uh, most consumers at this point in history understand that their data will be monetized for the purpose of advertising, that they're involved in a bargain. The bargain is you get free services. Uh, in return, you're going to get ads that are going to be tailored to you and targeted to you. So that basic principle, that basic bargain strikes me as the baseline for where we start our analysis. It's just like the idea that you pay a lawyer for services, you pay a doctor for services. What I'm more interested in are a slightly a greater set of conflicts of interest. That's where I um, really don't think that the client uh, would be advantaged, would, it would be good for the client to basically uh, do a particular surgery or, to, or a lawyer uh, to, to do a particular uh, transaction, or, or if I'm a financial advisor to buy a certain stock or a certain mutual fund because, in fact, the, the load on it is very high and uh, the, uh, the, the fees charged on it are very high. But guess what? I get kickbacks from the fees. I get kickbacks from the fund, and therefore, I'm going to re recommend that even though, in fact, there's a fund that's just as good that's no load or, or that has fewer fees. That's the kind of thing that I'm particularly interested in regulating. How would that happen? How would that kind of thing happen? There are two ways it could happen. One is you deliberately choose to sell a product that you think is harmful, that you believe reasonably believe is harmful to the consumer you're selling it to, and you, you give them ads for it. Right? The other possibility is you take the data, which is being used for targeted advertising, and you turn it to a completely unexpected and offensive purpose. So in other words, I expect that I'm going to get targeted ads if I sign up with Facebook. The question is, do I expect that Facebook is then going to um, 
uh, sell this to a, a political data broker like Cambridge Analytica. It seems to me a lot of people said, I signed up for shampoo ads. I didn't sign up for political ads. Well, that's, a, that's an unexpected and offensive use of the data. And then we could imagine even more uh, outrageous uses. So, for example, we could imagine uh, attempts to try to pressure or, uh, or warn or blackmail or threaten end users with the data that has been collected by, an end, uh, by a, uh, uh, a fiduciary. Here, I'm not thinking necessarily of Facebook, but there's a wonderful story. Uh, it, it involves Uber, in which at one point one of Uber's management people was very upset at a um, at a story about the company by a journalist. And then at a dinner, a dinner attended by other journalists, he said, "You know, we ought to take some of our data and we ought to, you know, make it clear to the journalists that we don't like these kinds of stories." <laughs> well, that's a violation of fiduciary duty. Uh, another another violation which, by the way, you could imagine, but I mean, it hasn't really happened this way, is just imagine that you run a dating site. You match people. And to match them, you get the most intimate details. And then what you decide to do f just for fun in order to increase readership is you create a blog. And on the blog, you tell funny stories about the kind of crazy people who use your dating site. Uh, and you know, you tell stories, you, you, know, you change the first name, but you tell enough information about it that people start, well, is that about me? This also seems to me to be a breach of the fiduciary duty as well. I mean, we're worried now about what Facebook's been doing, but believe me, there are many, many far worse things that you could do with this data than the stuff that's that's currently come out. Right, and I mean, if, if we have, um, let's take the uh, mobile tracker ecosystem, right? Yeah. Um, I worked on, a project um, here at Yale, there's an enormous amount of trackers that are packaged into your apps that are third-party entities which are sucking data out, usually for targeted advertising. But if you look at the terms, usually they're, it's, uh, you're conceding that they're allowed to take the data out and share it with others. Sometimes it's sell it, but at bare minimum, usually it's sharing it. Uh, right. And then that's data is being sloshed around in, in the background um, and into the data broker industry, right? So when you're using your weather app, you didn't really think that was going to happen. Um, that is, you signed up for weather yeah. and a couple of ads. Yeah. You didn't sign up for general locational tracking. But there's, yeah, and but there's, there's, Thousands of these uh, advertising right. entities, including some giants, uh, some that you wouldn't, might not expect, like Adobe, but also you have Google, you have Facebook, the others. Um, there's a lot of money, and there's an entire industry involved in this. Um, what kind of, um, I mean, is the intention of information fiduciary theory to rein this practice in? Yeah, I, I think. Again, to go back to the basic point I made, I think what we ought to do is we should set a baseline of the expected uses of data in order to provide the service, the service being, of course, providing a social network. And the basic bargain is targeted advertising in return for free services. Anything you do above and beyond that, you really have to, to face two questions. First of all, is the, is the end user... Is the end user going to be actively harmed by the way the data is shared to a third party? If so, you really shouldn't share it to that third party. And secondly, 
are you or your business partner going to use the data in a wholly unexpected and highly offensive way? That is a way that would be seen as unethical and and offensive to a reasonable person. If so, then you have a duty not to share or to engage it yourself. But how do we implement this theory? Do we need a new statute? Should we plead for uh, democratic participation in defining the duties of good faith and (laughs) non-manipulation? And and also, why isn't uh, consumer protection law already sufficient uh, to, to the task? Well, consumer protection law, there's a sense in what do we mean by consumer protection law. So if all we mean by consumer protection law is whether or not the product delivers the service or good as expected, well, you're stretching the concept of consumer protection, but in fact, uh, that's not what consumer protection law was originally designed for. There's a joke I like to tell, which is the difference between 20th century and 21st century visions of consumer protection. The 20th century vision of consumer protection is you have a Coke bottle that explodes in your face, and so you ha- so they have a duty not to make a Coke bottle that explodes in your face, a defective Coke bottle. The 21st ver- century version problem is that the Coke bottle is spying on you. All right. So the older vision of consumer protection is the car breaks down, the Coke bottle explodes, the Mr. Coffee uh, sets itself on fire. The 21st century problem is basically manipulation, surveillance, you know, and... Uh, we know when, we, when you drink. Yeah. Time well, or, we know what you're reading. We know what you're yeah. drinking. We know what kind of coffee you like. It's the whole thing. It's How cold it is. There you are. So, uh, so if we're gonna, so we could say it's all about consumer protection, but we have to change our vision of what consumer protection is primarily about. Most products in the 20th century, when the consumer protection revolution occurred, were not interactive products in the sense that they basically got data on you. That is, your book was not watching you read. Your tele, uh, you know, your um, uh, your coffee maker was not <laughs> spying on you. Your house was not spying on you. But now, in the twenty first century, with the Internet of Things, everything in, is potentially spying on you. Everything is collecting data about you. So the the number of, uh, of information fiduciaries, it seems to me, expands with the number of of new products. That's the first thing. The second thing you asked was, how do you do it? All right. Here's the advantage of the information fiduciary model. It could be adopted by common law courts. It could be adopted by administrative agencies uh, working out regulations for consumer protection, as you said. It could be produced by a statute at the state level or the federal level. The other advantage, another advantage is that it's an old common law concept that lawyers and judges are already familiar with. It doesn't require them to have a, um, you know, a new way of thinking about the world. It's based on ideas they already know about. The third advantage is it's not tied to any particular technology. So a lot of technological regulation tries to define the technology that's involved, and then, it, then that leads to problems because the technology is always changing. On the other hand, if you start with a concept of trustworthiness and fiduciary duty, it has to be adapted as the technology changes, the idea of trustworthiness it just basically adapts with it because it's, it's about human relationships as opposed to a particular technology. So that's one reason why I think it's a better to go this way. Oh, there's one other thing I wanted to mention. When we talk about Facebook and problems with Facebook, not all of these problems are really problems of consumer protection. They're really, many of them are problems about size 
and they concern the question of antitrust. That is, the concentrated economic power of companies that have come into being in this, the second Gilded Age. Just like in the first Gilded Age, we had the, the trusts, uh, the monopolies in uh, natural resources and railroads. So now in the second Gilded Age, these are uh, large companies, huge companies, about the delivery of uh, digital services and digital communication. And many of the things that people are complaining about with respect to social media companies and search engines are really antitrust concerns. They're really right. But the thing is that the fiduciary concept fits perfectly well alongside any antitrust concern you have. It doesn't get in the way of it. It doesn't. It isn't itself an antitrust concept, but it doesn't prevent you uh, from pursuing antitrust remedies. So talking about antitrust and competition, what will be the effect of this theory if it's implemented? For example, can regulation be harder on small actors who might be more vulnerable than big actors? And then would it deprive them from getting access to the market because they will have to implement more layers of formalities and protection yeah, for end users? Yeah, it's a great point. This, this is also a question of how you design um, a, a regulatory system. So my advice would be, if I were drafting a statute or a regulation, I would exempt cloud services that have less than, and I'll take an arbitrary figure for this answer, 500,000 users. So in other words, if you have less than 500,000 users, we're not going to impose a fiduciary duty on you. Once you have over 500,000 users measured by some three-month interval or whatever, then your fiduciary duties apply to you. Why do we do this? Well, we don't want to have a barrier to entry for new uh, services, new Internet of Things services, new cloud services, new social network services. Indeed, we, want, we would actually like there to be at least 12 or 13 or 14 or 15 Facebooks. It would, it would be much more difficult for the Russians to hack it if there are 15 of them that all have different functions and different uh, uh, focuses. And it would probably also have a salutary effect on the, on the political effects of social media sites. So it's really important to develop models of regulation that don't crush uh, you know, innovators. Uh, that's so that, and actually, this sort of fits the glide path of most companies. That is, most companies start out with a relatively small number of end users. Then they start getting popular because they're providing a valuable service. At some point, they just get big. As soon as they really get big, they start causing problems as well as having problems. So you want to have some sort of cutoff point at which they have to start paying attention to them. The um. So part of the problem with uh, uh, such large information-oriented corporations is that they have giant de detailed databases about massive amounts of people. Facebook right. has a billion users. <laughs> right. um, oh, they have two billion now, don't they? Are they two billion? Yeah, they have two billion. Yeah, two billion. So they're eventually there. they're going to run there's, out of humans, <laughs> and the plan is to uh, is to uh, port Facebook over to Alpha and Centauri because uh, <laughs> not enough humans. Exactly, right? So, I mean, and, and this gives them um, enormous power, um, but also uh, on, on top of that, there's, there is this kind of question about the sensibility as a species of having one organization have all of this data. Um, is, is the information fiduciary's proposal, um, in your mind, is, are you agnostic on data collection? Should there be limits on um, data collection, or do companies have carte blanche? Uh, to just collect as much data as, as they want. 
So the, uh, the fiduciary proposal is not a primarily a proposal about data collection. It's primarily a, a, a proposal about data use and uh, data distribution and sale. So if you think about privacy policies, you can think of them as intervening along a spectrum of events. There's the moment of collection, the moment of analysis, the moment of use, the moment of sale, the moment of distribution, and finally, there's a last moment, which is the moment of retention or destruction. Um, <coughs> so, uh, fiduciary duties are primarily not about the front end, which is the collection point. They're primarily about the use, sale, distribution, and retention points. Uh, it, but, of course, the fiduciary concept is not inconsistent with, that is to say, it doesn't get in the way of other kinds of privacy policies that uh, regulate uh, collection. Um, generally speaking, we don't put significant restrictions on the collection of data by uh, professionals uh, if, if it's related to the services they're providing. But uh, we ordinarily wouldn't think that a, um, uh, a stockbroker or an investment advisor uh, would be permitted to ask you about a bunch of things that are entirely extraneous to investment. Right? So it's possible that you could say that this is not really part of the duty, that is not part of the services you're performing, so you really shouldn't be able to collect this kind of information. It's not an, un an unreasonable thing. On the complete back end, that is the disgorgement point, the retention, another point is that for purposes of safety and security of data, it might be a good idea, although again, I'm not insisting that it has to be tied to the fiduciary concept, to routinely purge the data that you have and start afresh. Now, I should just point out, this will be bitterly resisted. It will be bitterly resisted by search engine companies, and it will be bitterly resisted by data brokers, and it will be bitterly resisted by most cloud services. Uh, for two reasons. First of all, because the more data they have, the better uh, they'll be able to predict people's behavior. And the, and the goal, I think, of much of um, the modern algorithmic society uh, is practical omniscience. That is basically, that's the goal, is to know everything and predict everything. So that completely undermines the goal. The second thing is that it actually turns out it's a rather complicated task. Uh, once you've basically uh, collected data and placed it in redundant locations and created enormous amounts of metadata based on the data you collect, it's actually more difficult than it looks to purge your data. Because uh, <laughs> you, you have to find every place where it was put. You have to trace out all the metadata that was made out of the original data. And then you have to basically decide what you're going to purge and what you're not. And it's actually it's, it's, you know, easier said than done. Yeah. And actually, there's an example in Europe where you have a lot of uh, regulation of data collection and a lot of statutes uh, provide exemptions for uh, on the data retention about like um, if data are necessary to um, to to maintaining the the system or is it um, is data necessary in terms of tax for tax purposes? There's a lot of ex exemptions that allow tech companies to retain data for like almost indefinite, indefinite um, right. duration. Uh, there's, there's another thing, we, by the way, that, that I mentioned before we lose track of it. Another advantage of this fiduciary conception 
will be how it will change the law of search and seizure for government searches. So it's my currently the way that the world works is that if you share uh, personal data with any other party, uh, there is something called third party doctrine, which says that the uh, authorities, the government, can get access to it by simply asking the third party and that you have no expectation um, a constitutional expectation of privacy protection because you gave it to somebody else and they could always betray you. Uh, my view is that if the person that you gave your data to is an information fiduciary, then the government has to get a warrant from them. That is, they can't just simply ask the third party to hand it over. So this is a limitation on the third party doctrine. It isn't a complete, it, do, it doesn't get rid of the third party doctrine completely. Obviously, if the third party you give their data to is not a fiduciary, well, then you don't need a warrant. But the whole idea is it would really change the way in which uh, 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 the government engages investigations because it would increase the number of situations in which a warrant was required. So does that, does that make social media platform um, a new privileged entity in constitutional law, just like lawyers and doctors well, or it would politicians be an ex- it would or be journalists? An extension, it would be an extension of the common law concept of the fiduciary. It would be the creation of a new class of digital fiduciaries responding to social and economic change. Since we are entering into the world, not in which Facebook is just one example, we're entering into the world in which most services that we rely on every day and most products that we use every day are going to be collecting data about us. That is just the way it is. And just as we had a revolution in products liability in the 20th century when you had the mass distribution of products that could injure people, so in the 21st century you now have the mass distribution of products that spy on people. And you just have to take older concepts, older legal concepts, and adapt them to the changed social and economic uh, circumstances. I would like to go back to the, the Cambridge Analytica scandal because it revealed the important role of online platforms in the electoral process. Um, so you, you write that um, tech companies are governing speech. Uh, would you say that Facebook or Twitter uh, also govern the electoral process in a certain way because they provide a venue uh, or a medium which is effectively uh, government uh, campaigning service? Uh, so I don't think that. I think that they are the successors of 20th century mass communications, broadcasting. So they, that is, even though they don't provide their own content, they essentially act as the conduits for the messaging, political messaging, and political debate. Uh, so they provide a kind of interactive platform for political speech and political debate and campaigning, whereas 20th century mass media, that is broadcast, radio, television, newspapers, uh, uh, books, they provided a platform for a relatively small number of people to reach a very large audience on issues of politics and, and campaigning. So we've moved from sort of few to many to many to many uh, discussions, but still what's going on is this is the platform in which politics is occurring. So that's the appropriate model. In other words, they are 21st century media companies, and they have and should have the same kind of, here I'm going to make a distinction, moral duties, as opposed to legal duties, moral duties, uh, to preserve and protect democracy that 20th century newspapers, uh, radio stations, and television stations understood themselves to have. So, so, 
To follow up on that uh, very quickly, would a statute imposing information fiduciary duties on tech companies constitute a new sign of the government co-opting the tech industry? Uh, To put it in other words, it's a universal problem. So what is the role of the international community, as we say, in in the the definition of uh, the duties of good faith and non-manipulation? Should it be like an information duty uh, created or crafted state like nation by nation? Or should we go and look for an international agreement? Well, international agreements are often awkward and and unwieldy and difficult to impose and enforce. In practical terms, if you really want something like information fiduciary obligations around the world, the easiest way to do it would be to get either the United States or the European Union to impose these duties. And then as a matter of economic um, uh, logic, uh, worldwide uh, cloud services will basically adopt these uh, things through all their operations because it's just easier to scale it that way. A Facebook, you should understand. So if you think about Facebook, um, it's, it is worried about the rise of other social media companies and other competitors, say in search engines or um, other cloud services, that would be uh, subject to smaller or lesser or less burdensome regulatory obligations than it is. So Facebook, in some sense, doesn't have a significant problem with uh, increased regulation. It knows it's going to happen. It's inevitable. It can already see that Europe is about to implement the GDPR. It just wants to make sure that any regulatory scheme that's put in place, it, all, the, all of its competitors will have to suffer the same obligations so that it doesn't lose competitive advantage. And so that's why it turns out that in practice, the European Union has such leverage in global privacy policy, because basically the, the European, all the all the players are playing in the in the boundaries of the European Union. So the European Union says, okay, GDPR. So they're all going to have to be on the same competitive playing field. Same thing would happen if the United States uh, decided that it wanted to have a national uh, data pr- uh, protection policy, which so far it hasn't. Um, the same thing would happen. Everyone say, oh, it's fine with me as long as, as all my competitors have to abide by the same rules. And that would get you to the same place, really, as uh, international treaty. But if, if you're if, – so we're looking at uh... – I should just point out one additional thing. It will be very interesting to see how this plays out. There's a sense in which Americans get to have their cake and eat it too. That is, Americans resist passing comprehensive data privacy regulations, but they also know that the Europeans are imposing it so that they will get the benefits of European data privacy protection rules uh, without actually having to go through the political headache of negotiating and and having a grand bargain over privacy. I'm sorry, I interrupted you. Yeah, I mean, uh, so... Tech companies have developed civility norms to curate content. So they have rules uh, for hate speech, bullying, uh, obscene or or adult content. Um, So this is kind of poses a question in this international context to me. First of all, are you do you think under information fiduciaries that uh, bullying, hate speech and so on should um, be part of that regulation? But second of all, then how do you deal with this international component of a Facebook or a Twitter or so on? Because their their service is a global service, yet if we're coming up with law that is U.S.-based or even U.S. and European-based, 
you can argue potentially that that's an, an imperial um, or um, um, insensitive to the participation of, say, the global south and, and other countries in the world. Right. Two different issues. Um, so what is, so the first issue is whether or not the fiduciary concept applies to speech regulation generally. And the second is what's there is a there is an inherent problem that flows from my previous answer that has to do with the influence of the European Union or the US as big players. Let's handle them separately. On the first issue, I don't believe that the fiduciary concept should be extended to require of these uh, uh, cloud services that they engage in hate speech regulation or uh, cyberbullying regulation. This seems to be a separate problem. In the same way that the, the antitrust problem is a separate problem. The fiduciary issue has to do with the collection and use of data in ways that could be to the disadvantage or harm of the end user. It's not primarily about the regulation of the speech of end users. There are good reasons why uh, social media sites have civility policies. They have to do with the psychology of internet speech. That is, that, that uh, people feel unleashed in their abilities to harm people and shame people and treat people badly because they're not face-to-face -face with them. And so th therefore, they do things they would never do if they were face-to-face -face with another person. And so the internet speech creates civility problems that you just don't have in the same way in, in real space conversations. So you have to have civility policies. Those civility policies are not justified on the grounds of fiduciary obligation. They're based on the grounds of basically preserving a safe space for com a conversation. Um, I, I do have problems, this is a separate question, with nation states leveraging their regulatory authority to force social media sites to adopt their parochial conceptions of speech regulation policies. That is, um, so the European Union, of course, for example, is put, has entered into agreements with Microsoft and with Google and with Facebook and I think with Twitter uh, to essentially deputize these companies to enforce European-style hate speech laws. Um, and they've also gotten various NGOs in the bargain, uh, basically identifying, you know, this looks like hate speech to us, take it down. So they're really requiring um, uh, these companies to take things down promptly within 24 hours after uh, notice. Uh, I have problems with this not simply because European uh, hate speech laws differ from those in the United States. That's a separate matter. I have problems because the way this is going to work out is, is that speech is going to be blocked and taken down uh, without any judicial determination of whether or not it actually is protected or protected even under European law without any civil liberties guarantees, um, without any notice, uh, without any due process, and it's going to be implemented by private companies that are acting as essentially deputized agents of nation states without any of the obligations that flow to actual government agents. That is, actual government agents are restricted in terms of what they have to do, but this new system is a system of private deputization which has none of those guarantees. So that's my real problem with it. Now, so that's the answer to the first question. That was a long answer. Here's the second issue. I am concerned about the fact that the advantage that comes from having Europe take the lead on privacy also means that Europe could just as well take the lead on speech regulation, right? In other words, sauce for the goose is sauce for the gander. And 
I fully take your point that it will have effects both in the United States and it will have effects in the global south. So this isn't a full solution to the problem, but I generally am opposed to the extension of universal jurisdiction for uh, speech regulation. That is, if the European Union wants to have hate speech regulation within the borders of the European Union, that's really their business. But what I don't want them to do is say there's universal jurisdiction for our obligations. So that means that no matter where you are in the world, you have to be bound by European hate speech rules because there might be a citizen of one of the European Union countries living in your country. And in order to protect them, we have to apply this worldwide. This I oppose. So what would be a desirable solution? Uh, who should do the monitoring of tech companies' policies? Uh, can we think about a kind of data protection authority just like the ones that exist in Europe, which have investigative powers, which can issue, issue sanctions or impose a ban on certain practices? What, what do you think about that? So now we've moved back from the hate speech regulation and speech regulation back to the data protection and fiduciary stuff. Okay. <laughs> Here, there are any number of different things we could do. We could do it through administrative, we could take existing administrative agencies and we could give them rulemaking authority uh, to create um, regulations that have the force of law for social media companies and cloud companies operating in the United States. And basically in the United States, that's mostly how we've done things, not always. Uh, we've used administrative agencies to flesh out the, uh, the, the details. Um, the other way we could do it is we could create a new agency that is is just primarily about data protection and primarily about consumer protection and privacy. And uh, to take a, a proposal by Ryan Kahlo, we could combine that with the regulation of algorithms and artificial intelligence uh, agents, which are essentially, this is a lot of what they're doing. What they're doing is they're collecting and processing data and making predictions. So both of these are possible. It's really a question of political will, you know, what uh, American politicians are willing to consider. The, um, the, so first of all, would you want to see uh, financial sanctions on companies uh, that uh, violate the stipulations of being an information fiduciary? Um, will it be the purpose or effect of information fiduciary theory to break legal the legal immunity of of platforms okay so there are two different uh, questions again one is what's the appropriate remedy well generally speaking um, you can either use fines, which is often used, or you can use uh, consent decrees, which is what the FTC does. And in fact, Facebook is operating under a consent decree right now. Um, it's, I'm, I'm all for remedial flexibility. I don't think there's necessarily one remedy that's always the best. I tend to think that you should have a full panoply of remedies. The second question was, what's the relationship between the duty, uh, the fiduciary duty and the intermediary immunities, which we have under Section 230 of the uh, Telecom Act of 1996? So for the audience, members of the audience who don't know, most freedom of expression online in America is not protected by the First Amendment. It's actually protected by Section 230, which immunizes the platform, the search engine, uh, the social media company, uh, the web hosting company, uh, 
the registrar, the registry, all the various aspects of the digital infrastructure from liability for speech that is stored on their sites or flows through their sites or is affiliated with their sites. All, they're all immune from that because of Section 230. And that's actually what helped the internet grow and make it possible uh, for, to be this very, very uh, uh, amazing uh, communication system. One possibility, which is a possibility that has been floated by uh, Jonathan Zittrain and by me in an article in The Atlantic about two years ago, was that we could propose a new grand bargain. Under this new grand bargain, if you're a social media site or a cloud service site over a certain number of end users, as I described before, you will get the advantage of the Section 230 immunity. In return, uh, you will uh, uh, have to take on the obligations of an information fiduciary with respect to your end users. If you turn down the duties of an information fiduciary, then you just simply will be left to whatever protections are available for your business under the American First Amendment. So in other words, if you think about it, Section 230, all of it, the whole of it, isn't required by the First Amendment. It's an add-on. So the idea is if you want the add-on, take on the duties of information fiduciary. If you don't want the duties, you get all the protections you would ordinarily get under the American First Amendment. And so that's a proposal that Jonathan and I have made. I think it makes a lot of sense. It, it, it does solve a bunch of very tricky questions about the limits of, it, of intermediary immunity, and it leverages it uh, for, I think, a useful purpose. Okay. So um, in terms of – so if we're looking now at the um, information fiduciary um, Proposal that you've been making the last few years—it's um, now kind of exploded in 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 with Facebook, and that it's 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 picking up traction, right? And and it's being discussed in in public media outlets because, because of this podcast. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and uh, I mean, what is what is um, and and the regulation era uh, of these big social media companies and so on. I mean, it's just beginning. But what do you think the um, next step is forward for information fiduciaries? The big work that has to be done, which uh, you know we at the ISP are working on, and I've been talking to Jonathan Zittrain and Berkman about, is creating a model statute, uh, articulating uh, some examples of how to apply the concept so that uh, lawmakers are feel comfortable with it, uh, engaging in litigation to sort of test out the waters of how judges will work with the concept. That's really the next set, uh, uh, next set of steps. As for the publicizing the concept, well, I leave that to you folks because you obviously <laughs> are better than I at, at spreading these ideas. All right. And uh, last question here. Um, what about beyond information fiduciaries? Uh, the common person uh, oftentimes does not, doesn't investigate too much about the sea change that is occurring in society about data and privacy, um, about power and manipulation. What else can be done besides regulating tech corporations? Well, that is a, that's the subject, I guess, of another podcast, won't it be? The only very simple things I'd end with are that um, the next generation of end users is likely to be uh, far more 
savvy about the world they live in than the previous generation was. And so there's a really important work to be done in terms of uh, public education and also in technological design. That is, right now, the technology is primarily being used to sap our privacy and undermine our privacy. But as you well, you yourself well know, there's lots of ways to use technological design to, to protect and preserve privacy. And that also, I think, is gonna be the burden of the next several years. Okay, awesome. Well, Jack, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you Kamel. very much. A pleasure. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. Bye-bye. It was a pleasure. Thanks.